Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us, to your word, to all of your promises. Thank you that you have brought the gospel here to us, uh, here from the standpoint of Jerusalem uh, to the ends of the earth. And we thank you for that. And we pray that we would be faithful with the gospel as we are entrusted with it and that we would proclaim it uh, with boldness as we ought and in reliance upon you. And I pray now as we look at your word and look again, continue to see the faithfulness and the, and the boldness and the faith and the humility of the Apostle Paul. Lord, help us to be changed uh, and to learn from him. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, yeah, we're covering chapters 23 to 26 today. And um, I asked you last week to read chapter 23. How many of you read chapter 23? Uh, oh, look at that. Wow. Well, it's okay. We're going to read it today anyway. Yeah, I figured as much. But what's going on here, I'll just make a couple of comments before we begin, just to orient us. Um, here's the point. Things have been uh, the book of Acts so far, especially chapter 9, 10, well, after the conversion of Paul, we've got the gospel going out and out and out, right? And ultimately, uh, it's going to land with the, in the mouth of the apostle Paul in Rome before Caesar. What? What? Oh, yeah, I gave the ending away. All right, sorry. I think you probably read it. Um, and so this is the process. So when we get to this point, a lot of what's happening now is kind of repetitive because the Apostle Paul is going to give his, his, his testimony before some officials, some civil magistrates, and, uh, and some religious, Jewish religious leaders. So there's a lot of, it looks like a huge amount to cover, but really it's not that bad. Trust me. We'll see. And a couple of things I want you to notice. Um, the Apostle Paul, notice the Apostle Paul as he stands before the religious, the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman civil magistrate. And notice as we read through this how he deals with both. Um, he has this both boldness and deference. Deference is like the, the appropriate response to someone who's an authority, right? And yet boldness at the same time. He has respect and steadfast proclamation of the truth. Now, before we read, starting in chapter 23, here's the map. Oh, that's kind of fuzzy. So this is much of what we're going to cover today, all right, is, well, sort of. When we get into chapter 27 and 28, it's when he really basically gets in the boat and goes all the way to Rome, and that's, that's next week, all right? But this is kind of where he's going. He's going to land in Rome. He gets... Uh, Storms cause ship to lose control and wander sea for two weeks right there somewhere. So we'll see that next week. And right now he's, he's preparing for that voyage. So let's begin to read it. The last verse of chapter 22 sets up chapter 23. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews. Remember this? He's arrested uh, because there's basically a riot that breaks out around, around his presence, the Apostle Paul's presence in the temple in Jerusalem. 
and they make false accusations against him and the Roman uh, commander of the cohort there steps in and, and essentially rescues him, is about to beat him and he says, remember what Paul says? Is it, is it lawful for you to, to beat a Roman citizen without trial? No. And so that's what's happening. And they're going to bring him down to the high council of, of the Jews. So on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him. He is the commander, the Roman commander, and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Anybody else? Mm -mm. What was that about humility? If it's true, it's true. It's true. He's not lying. Right? It's true. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Why? He must be lying. Uh, he, he must be blaspheming. He must be something, right, in, in their eyes. To the thief, all men steal. He can't, can't possibly be true in their eyes. But it's true, okay? So he orders them to strike him in the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystander said, why do you keep saying that? But, okay, so what keeps saying is, how can you call this humility? This is absolutely true and bold are not in opposition to humility. No, there's no but. This is not him being proud, okay? This is truth. This is justice. This is right according to the law. This is not... This is not pride, and we'll see, why. we'll see that's the fact, because what happens next, All right? But the bystander said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people, All right? He's submitting himself to the, to the scriptures all across the board here. It's, it's, a, it's not pride to call out lawlessness. Everyone understands that. Or injustice. Even when it's being done by, by the rulers. And yet at the same time, there's a deference and a humility towards the high priest because God says so. You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Alright, let's keep going. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees in the council, right, Paul began crying out in the council, brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and, re and resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there caused, uh, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there occurred a great uproar 
And some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. Now this, you all are familiar with this story, I think. This is a brilliant, brilliant tactical maneuver, right? Yeah, this is politics. Um, but it's, uh, he knows what's going on. And there's one way to, uh, there's two things going on here. Number one, I, he wants to um, not die. It's always a good plan, off usually. But he also is there literally for the resurrection of the dead. That's the whole point. And we're going to see this all through these chapters today. Over and over again, it comes back to the resurrection. Not so much the death of Christ, which obviously you can't have a resurrection without the death of Christ, right? But, but always the resurrection. What he's on trial for is the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And he knows by saying that, of course, it's going to divert the attention away from him and cause them to argue with one another and maybe he can slip out or something. And so, sure enough, the, some of the Pharisees stand up and say, hey, uh, he's, he's on trial for the resurrection of the dead. We believe that. So how do we know that a spirit or an angel didn't talk to him? So it's a brilliant maneuver, and, and it works. And as a great dissension was developing, you know, if, you, if any of you watched uh, m- movies or films or video of the, uh, of the English parliament, have you seen these? Nothing like our, nothing like our system. They're, they're facing each other, and they're, they're yelling. Um, they're banging on things. Sometimes, you know, it breaks out into fisticuffs, you know. It really does. So think, think like that. Okay, this is what's going on. A great dissension. As a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. All right, Paul, this is the Lord Jesus. He appears before him again, as he has on several occasions, and he stands next to him, it says, he stands there and he says, you've witnessed to me at Jerusalem, you, you must witness to me at Rome. We'll come back to that. We'll see what happens next. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. That's a big plot, you know? They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. So not only did they not try to hide it, they actually came forward to the chief priests and and there developed a conspiracy, right? Now therefore you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation, and we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. So they're going to lay an ambush. Counsel, call him, 
from the, from the prison or whatever and, and bring him down and on the route, we're going to kill him. But the son of Paul's sister, which means what? So this is Paul's nephew. There's a little tiny glimpse into the, the humanity of Paul. He actually has a family, you know, he has a sister. The son, and he's an uncle, Uncle Paul. <laughs> but the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush and he came in and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, lead this young man to the commander for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and stepped aside, stepping aside, began to inquire of him privately, what is it that you have to report to me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them for more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. They were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter having this form. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. Not exactly how it happened. Isn't that funny? It's not exactly what what happened at all. Having learned that it's like, oh, that man's a Roman. I got to go rescue him. That's how the letter comes off, right? Not at all what happened. He was bound, he was stretched out, tied up, ready to be beaten. And then he learned he was a Roman. <laughs> a little, yeah, a little more shading of the truth here. He comes out the hero, old Claudius Lysias. And, and wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to the, their council and I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So that's the letter he's gonna send to the governor down in Caesarea, Felix. So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. When these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. When he had read it, he asked from what province he was, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Now, let's stop there and just think about this. This very interesting uh, lesson to note here. The Lord Jesus himself had appeared to Paul and said, what? He said, take courage, take courage. Um, For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. 
right? That's what Jesus had stood at him and said. The very next day, it says, the plots, or the Jews, 40 of them, plotted to kill him. And it, it went beyond just those 40 because they bring in the whole council, the chief priests and the council. They're in on it too. And then when, then Paul's nephew somehow gets wind of the plot. We don't know how. Maybe he was in the room. Maybe he was on the council. Who knows? Somehow he gets wind of the plot and he tells Paul, who tells the commander, who interviews the nephew, the commander takes extraordinary measures to transport Paul to safety, 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. So 270 men to protect one man from 40. That'll probably do the trick, right? So what's the lesson? Put these things together and tell me what the lesson is. Yeah, God will provide protection, but that's not quite there yet. All right, anyone else to add to that? That's right. Right, so God, yeah, God, the Lord Jesus told him what was going to happen. This was the sovereign, right, the, the, the plan of, of, of God. Paul, you're not going to die. You're not going to die in Jerusalem. You're actually going to go and stand before Caesar himself in Rome. And then there's the plot. And then there's the nephew. And then there's the centurion. And then there's the 270 soldiers. How is it that God gets, um, gets the end done that he has ordained, right? That he has, that he has planned in advance. He gets it done by means. That's, that's how it always is. And he does it by, uh, you know, a nephew overhearing something, by a commander being willing to hear him, you know, all these things. A commander being worried about his own job if he lets this Roman citizen be killed by the, and then, of course, at government expense, at, you know, how much does it cost to saddle up 200 horses and send them down the road and 270 men? All of this is God working to, 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 to get the end done that he wants done. John, what were you going to say? Yeah. Very good point. Yeah. So, Paul, the Lord Jesus had stood beside his bed and told him, "You're not going to die. You're going. To, you're going to go into Rome." And Paul, when he hears the news from his nephew, doesn't say, huh. "I know that's not going to happen." Right? He says, "Listen, nephew, go talk to the commander and tell him." So these things aren't at odds with one another. God uses means. Right? And there's all kinds of lessons for that that are practical that we need to move on to. What? Yes? I have a question. Yeah. The Jews in verse 12, would those have likely been the Sadducees since the Pharisees previous to that were not so ill-disposed toward Paul? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I think it was more, I don't think so. The Pharisees wanted I think in the heat of the moment of that council meeting where he stands up and pits them against each other, that's one thing. 
I think they still actually want him dead, or the majority do. Seems to be the case, if you take the whole thing together. All right, yes? Yeah. 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 Yeah, he has the copy of the letter from the commander and and puts it in the text of, the, of Acts. Yeah, all these all these things that he has to get his hands on. Luke does in order to end up with the with the book of Acts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um so God uses means. So you pray and you work and you put your seatbelt on and you look both ways before you cross the street. All right? Don't be a fool. Paul wasn't a fool. His assurance by the, from the Lord Jesus' mouth himself that he would not die in Jerusalem didn't make him a fool. You, you with me? All right, let's keep going. Chapter 24. And five day, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with an attorney named Tertullus, I keep looking at Brian, but he's ignoring me. <laughs> huh? It's a bad attorney, right? Which is, isn't that a, what do you call that? A, a redundancy, yeah. And they brought charges to the governor against Paul. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, since we have... Through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us, by your kindness, a brief hearing. For we have found this man a real pest. and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple. And then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law, but Lysias, the commander, came along, and with much violence, took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. What's the lesson here? Notice the, notice the flattery from the lawyer. <laughs> you know. Oh, most excellent Felix. Oh, we have, you have attained, through you, we have attained much peace. Your providence, oh, reforms are being carried out for this. We acknowledge in every, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere how great you are, Felix. Now, Felix, this Paul's a pest. We want you to kill him because he's a pest. Isn't that amazing? Are any of the things true? Think about the, the enemies of the gospel, what do they do? And it should be no surprise. What do they do? They lie. They lie. Why wouldn't they? 
They have no reason not to lie. Why, you understand? We, th- we think, we, those who have a, a tender conscience and wouldn't lie before the governor think that everybody has a tender conscience and wouldn't lie before the governor. But that's not true. Enemies of the gospel are liars. Their father is Satan, who's the father of lies. Why wouldn't they lie? And here they are lying. Don't, don't, take this, uh, don't be surprised when the enemies of the gospel lie about you, okay? Not to put too fine a point on it, but about your church. Don't be surprised. Don't be like flummoxed by that. This is what, this is what they do, right? You're with me, everybody? Now, keep going. When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded. Notice the contrast between the way Paul speaks and the way the lawyer speaks to the same man, all right? When the governor nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot, nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. What's the difference between how Paul is talking and how the, how the lawyer? Perfectly straightforward. Any flattery? No flattery. Plain, simple, respectful, clearly. And what else? One more word. Cheerful. <laughs> you know, he's, not, he's not freaked out. He's not uh, depressed. He's not despondent. He's not bitter at the Jews. He's not, you know, weighed down with the burden of, of, you know, defending the gospel. No, he's cheerful. Oh, great. I get to talk to the governor. This is great. This is what Jesus said would happen. Here I am. This is great. I might die. Probably will die. That's okay. You know, eventually. Plain, simple, respectful, cheerful. He goes on. But this I admit to you, that according to the, the way, the way is a, is a, is a title for uh, Christianity, we would call it today, over and over again in the book of Acts, okay? According to the way which they call a sect. According to the way which they call a cult. That's how you should hear that, okay? According to the way which they call a sect, a cult, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. This is, what is he saying here? Sum up what he's, the, the point that he's making so far in this defense. What is it? Yeah, this is nothing new. I, all I'm to, all, you know, the only thing I say to you, 
or the only thing I preach, the only thing I talk about is just from the Bible. You know, I'm just boringly normal. This is what the prophets taught. Uh, This is what um, the law and the prophets, you can find it right there in the scriptures. We have a hope in God that there will be a resurrection, both the righteous and the wicked. I'm not a lawless man. And I'm not novel, not making any of this up. He goes on. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation. Remember, he was bringing a gift to the church in Jerusalem. Lots of money collected from the churches, a lot mostly Gentile. There was a famine. They're bring, he's bringing money to them to help. I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified, without any crowd or uproar, wasn't there to cause a riot, wasn't there to do anything, but just the religious duties, you know, that I had set out to do. But there were some Jews from Asia. Asia, remember, is where he had kept, where he had been on his missionary journeys. So there's some Jews who are there in town from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation. In other words, the accusers, my accusers should have been here. There's going to be a fair trial. You can't have a fair trial without having the accused face his accusers. That's foundational to our law today. This is where we, one of the places we get it, from Rome. There are some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation if they should have anything against me, or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council. Other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them for the resurrection of the dead, I'm on trial before you today. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, so he knew Christianity. Exactly, it says. He had an exact knowledge. He had known, he knew what was going on. Put them off, saying, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave, so Lysias is the guy who sent the letter, the guy from uh, Jerusalem who had sent the, the letter and, and sent Paul there in the first place. So he wants Lysias to come down and be, be a, a witness. When Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet to have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. But some days later, Felix arrived <clears throat> with Drusilla. How come none of you parents are naming your daughters Drusilla? I never had the chance, or else I probably would have. <laughs> Drusilla. But some day, or how about Felix? No. Some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by uh, Porcius Festus, yeah. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. All right, now think about this. Uh, Notice 
What is, Paul's, what is the thing Paul keeps talking about with Festus? What things? You see it? Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. That's what he's talking about. So Paul's not being um, very sensitive to this man. Right? Even to the point that he is frightened. You see that? Felix became frightened. As he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened. Frightened of what? The judgment to come. He's hoping for his conversion. Absolutely. He's preaching the gospel to him. This is what preaching the gospel looks like, folks. Don't ever forget it. Remember what Jesus said uh, about the Holy Spirit. He says, when I send the comforter to you, this is John 16, talking about the Holy Spirit, he, when he comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Remember that? So all that Paul is doing here is cutting with the grain. You know, he's, he's, he's working in exactly the same lines that the Holy Spirit, that Jesus said the Holy Spirit would work. Here's an idea. If you're going to preach the gospel, if you're going to minister to people, don't cut against the grain, cut with it. You understand? Go with what you know the Holy Spirit is, was sent to do. Convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And he is convicted. Festus then, so new guy, Felix out of love of money and greed keeps having Paul come and talk to him. Paul says, fine, I'll come to you. I know that you're greedy. I know that, I know that you want, you think I'm going to bribe you. I'm happy to sit and talk to you as much as you want. I'm not going to bribe you. You know, he's, he's, he's happy to take advantage of the opportunity. Chapter 25. Festus then, new guy, having arrived in the province three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea and the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul. And they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul that he might have him brought down, brought to Jerusalem. At the same time, Sagan ambushed to kill him on the way. This is two years later. They're still wanting to kill him. Festus then answered, that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. After he had spent not more than eight or 10 days among them, he went down to Caesarea and on the next day, he took his seat in the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. After Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him which they could not prove. Many and serious charges. Again, they're liars. In their mind, the the, the end justifies the means. We want this man dead. We'll do whatever it takes. We'll slander. We'll lie. We'll bring false charges. Charges we can't prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense, either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar, But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, politics, right? 
answered Paul and said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? Now what happens if if Paul makes the trip to Jerusalem? He knows what's going on. He knows he'll be ambushed, right? They're laying in wait for him. And so Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I'm a Roman. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. (laughs) How does one refuse to die? I don't know. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. Right? Which means what? He's, he gets to Rome. He gets to Rome. Now notice, Paul, this is just a side point here, but think about this. What is he doing? What is he appealing to here? He's appealing to his rights as a Roman citizen. He's filing a lawsuit. He's making an appeal, appealing to a higher court. He's doing it the way it should be done. He's, he's not, he's not uh, allowing his enemies to, to use the system against him. He's, he's willing to fight in the courts. That's what this means against, against the Jews who want to kill him. Amen, Brian? Amen. He's going to the Supreme Court. The Christians should not in any way be squeamish about using the law of the land and, and using the process, using the system to defend themselves and the faith and other Christians. Are you with me? Don't ever be squeamish about this. Paul did it over and over again. Yes? I don't know. It's a good question. Why does, why does he ask him if he's willing? I think because he's a Roman citizen and he has, there's a process that he has to sign off on. I don't know, that, was my, that would be my guess. Okay. So, so Jesus said Paul would get to Rome. This is how he gets him there, through the legal process of an empire. Right? Okay. Verse 13. Now when several days had passed, had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. While they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there's a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them, that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the, and the accused meets his accusers face to face, and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. We take that for granted. We shouldn't take it for granted, but there it is. So after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought before me. When the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but simply 
had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. I thought this was some kind of crazy criminal, but the fact is he just had some religious disagreements with the Jews about some guy, Jesus. Being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters, but when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the auditorium, accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa, and all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer, but I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. And since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. I don't know, I don't know what to say about this guy to Caesar. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to in- indicate also the charges against him. Yeah, absurd. Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Now, remember who's here. A king and his wife, a governor and his wife, all the leading men of the city, some Roman soldiers. This is in the auditorium. This isn't in a back room. This is a big crowd. And here God has given him the opportunity to preach the gospel to them. What's he gonna do? Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they're willing to testify, tell the truth, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. Notice how he's always talking about the resurrection. Jesus is the king who's been, sat, who's been seated at God's right hand above all authorities and powers and principalities and all of that. That's the, that's the gospel message for Paul. It doesn't just, it's not just remember Jesus died for you. Don't you want to go to heaven when you die? Right? It's declaring the kingship of of King Jesus. So now here I am standing on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? (laughs) Little side. Who's he talking to here? Well, he's talking to all of them, but I think he's mainly talking to the Gentiles. Whenever he talks about the resurrection, the Gentiles lose their minds because they're Greeks and Greeks think the body is bad. So resurrection would be like the worst thing in the world for them and just absurd. He says, oh, by the way, why is it considered incredible among you you people 
if God does raise the dead. So then, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them, often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, to deny the Lord Jesus, right? And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While so engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion kingdom of Satan to God that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those at Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. (laughs) Your great learning is driving you mad. You've lost your mind, Paul. What are you talking about? Resurrection? Paul said, notice. Notice his response. Paul said, I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. Right? Steady as she goes. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. (laughs) King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Now he's appealing to his conscience. I know that you believe the prophets, and I'm just saying what the prophets have always spoken. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. Now, you could read that in two different ways. You can read it, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. Or you can say, in a short time, you'll persuade me to become a Christian. (laughs) And I think that's that. I think he's being sarcastic. All right. And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, Not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. 
He just takes it seriously, takes it head on. Not thrown by it, not defensive, not hurt. We're going to get through this chapter, no matter what happens over there. (laughs) Almost done. The king stood up and the governor and, and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. (laughs) But of course, he had to appeal to Caesar because he's got to get to Rome. You don't just get an office. You don't walk walk into Caesar's palace, knock on the door and say, hey, Caesar, uh, my name's Paul. Can we talk? The only way to get there is to be sit there like this. You understand? And so he does. Let me read one verse and we're done. Well, two verses. Philippians, this is what Paul says about this kind of thing. Here's what he says. Actually, as he's in prison in Rome, he says, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And that's what I want us to get. Encouragement to speak the word of God without fear. Okay? Now we'll talk about that next week and be done. Let's pray. Father, let's, uh, we ask you to um, take these words and take this example of this man and strengthen our faith and cause us to not be afraid, but instead to, to hope in you, to trust you, to acknowledge and, and rejoice in your kingship over all men and over all authorities and over death itself. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.